is Our American Story. Some of our very favorite stories have come from authors, folks who've spent years or often a lifetime studying or living a topic. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear author Neil Gabler's talk about Barbara Streisand, his terrific book about her life, a Brooklyn lady, by the way. Terry Teachout, his remarkable piece on Louis Armstrong and his book on Louis Armstrong. We did that in celebration of Armstrong's life. And Richard Zack's terrific new book on Mark Twain and how he lost all of his money and got some of it back and then lost it all over again. And today we have a very special author joining us, one who has lived a life worthy of several books. For 18 years, Charles Campisi was chief of the New York Police Department's Internal Affairs Bureau, the largest anti-corruption unit in the world. He held that position longer than anyone else, and as you can imagine, the man has some stories. He is the author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And he joins us now. Thanks for joining us, Charles. It is certainly my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Charles, before we get into the book, we like to start things where we always start them here in Our American Stories with where you were born, your parents, and what you did as a kid that led you to be a cop and a cop that ultimately chased bad cops. Um, what led you to become the man you were, decisions and forces in your life when you were young? Well, really, it starts off when I was about five years old. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my parents were also born and raised in Brooklyn. My grandparents uh, immigrated from, uh, from Italy you know, back in the 1890s. And at that time, I had an aunt who lived two doorways away from the old 83rd precinct, which was on Wilson Avenue in, uh, in Brooklyn. And as a kid, five years old, we visited. I would be there, and I would be uh, playing in the streets, as we did back then in the, uh, the mid to late 50s. And I got to meet and talk to and admire some of the police officers that worked basically right next door. And they were very nice people. They were people that I wanted to emulate. Uh, they would talk to me. As a matter of fact, one officer, an officer, by, his name was Mike. I don't know his last name. I don't think I ever did know his last name. Would let me walk down the street with him. There was even a time he put his police hat on my head and said, come on, you're with me, partner. And it was a great experience. And from that very early age, I knew I wanted to be like them. I knew I wanted to be someone who was counted on to help and someone who would be uh, available when people needed them. And that's really how it all starts. And that's how it starts for so many of us. You know, how uh, we behave as adults in our professions can actually impact whether young people choose that profession. And what a great illustration of that, uh, Charles. But if you had had a different experience with a police officer or two, you may have had a fundamentally different life. Absolutely. I might have taken an entirely different path. It's so true. And then talk about Brooklyn at the time, during your formative years, and talk about this place, Brooklyn. It's one of the more remarkable parts of New York City. It's the biggest borough. It has the most population. And everybody who goes to New York City always goes to Manhattan. But I've always submitted the most interesting parts of New York are in in the boroughs where the folks live who actually service and take care of that big island called Manhattan Island. Talk about Brooklyn. Well, Brooklyn was a great place to grow up. Uh, we lived in a multicultural neighborhood. We all got along. There were people on my, on my block where I lived from all over the world, immigrant families, uh, new people coming into the country. And we were all friends. We all played, and we could play in the street. There was no worries about having a child on the street alone. And we played all the games that, that kids played in the mid-50s and, and early 60s. We played stickball in the middle of the street, and we used to use the sewers as different bases, a home plate, second base. 
Uh, we played stoop ball. We played all the things that, that, that Brooklyn basically came to be known for. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. We had the Dodgers. We had uh, everything you could want was there in Brooklyn. You know, it's a ma- remarkable. As Barbara Streisand grew up in Brooklyn, as you know, yes. and, and so did Neil Diamond. But what people didn't know until I did that book was that Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand were at Erasmus High School at the exact same time, in the exact same class. That's didn't, crazy. didn't know each other. And they didn't know each other, because that's how big Erasmus High School is. And by the way, Brooklyn has a population of what, Charles? You know, four million people? Yes, and a matter of fact, there was a, a television show uh, called Welcome Back, Carter that portrayed Brooklyn as the third largest city in America if it was taken out of, uh, out of the Manhattan, out of the New York City five boroughs. It would be the third largest city in America. And I remember some of the cities, especially Philadelphia, not quite liking that. But, right. uh, yes, it's a big place, and it could be one of the largest cities in America. Indeed, and I've always told friends I grew up in northern Jersey, and that was back in the day when your parents would let you take your bicycle, go over the George Washington Bridge, strap your bike to a pole, get on a subway, and go anywhere you want, just be back by the time the sun sets. And a group of us would go out, and we would actually take trains all the way to Coney Island. And I had one friend who grew up in Brooklyn, and he had us bicycle from the Brooklyn Bridge straight down Ocean Parkway, all the way to Coney Island, and stopping all the way for all the different neighborhoods, from the Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods all the way to Little Odessa and Brighton Beach, which is all Russian. And it's truly a miracle, Brooklyn. And I urge all people who are listening, take an extra day or two when you go to New York City and get out of the city and go see the boroughs and go see life as it's lived outside of that, that big, that big, big uh, Manhattan Island. Uh, Charles, so you, 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 you grow up, you come out, you go out of high school. Talk about your formative and early years uh, at the New York City Police Department. Okay, I, I joined the police department. I'm selected in 1973. It was a long process because while I was in high school, I had applied to become a police officer. And you go through a variety of uh, testing, uh, physical testing, medical testing, psychological testing, background. And when I left high school, I entered college. And, again, I went to college in Long Island University, the Brooklyn Center, downtown Brooklyn, right yep. in the heart of Brooklyn. And, you know, basically it was a, a tough process to become a police officer. So when I first get there, uh, you're going through the academy. Academy is very, you know, very rigorous. Uh, physical training, which wasn't a problem for me at the time, you know, 21 years old, uh, you know, playing all kinds of sports. I mean, I love sports. I, I never was really any good in any of the sports, but I love to play, and that was all that was important, that I, I got a chance to play. And uh, going into the police department, we were coming in right after the NAP Commission. NAP Commission was, uh, people might remember from Frank Serpico, he was the impetus behind the NAP Commission and, and his testimony and uh, his courage to come forward and try to stop corruption is uh, uh, well documented, not only in books, but you know, Al Pacino played him in the, in the movie. So, uh, You know, Charles, coming- hold that thought for a second. We're going to come in after a commercial break and pick it up after the Serpico uh, moment because it's such a critical moment in the life of the New York City Police Department. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. More of Charles's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops. And Charles, we were just talking about, and by the way, if you've not seen the movie Serpico, uh, which stars Al Pacino. It's a very young Al Pacino, by the way. And it was a book that spawned this thing called the Knapp Commission, which if you lived in the New York area, and even if you didn't, but studied law enforcement, it was one of the seminal sea changes in how to think about, you know, thinking about corruption in large city police departments in particular. Um, talk about that moment in the history of the NYPD, particularly as this film really got out there because it had to change the perception of what people thought the average cop was up to day to day. Well, you're absolutely right because what we found in, uh, from the NAP Commission, from, uh, from Frank Serpico's story and then from the, uh, uh, the movie, was that corruption was very systemic in the New York City Police Department. By that, I mean it flowed from the lowest levels all the way up to the top echelon of the police department. And it flowed horizontally, it flowed vertically. It seemed that everybody, and it really wasn't everybody, but they made it seem like everybody had their hand in the till. But I have to tell you that it was probably most of the people who had their hand in the till. And although when Knapp was finished with his investigation, he could only prove criminality on uh, the highest rank he was able to prove criminality was at the lieutenant's rank. But there was so much evidence that showed it went much, much higher to, uh, to the other ranks within the police department. So when the NAP Commission finishes their investigation, and Serpico's story is, is well told, uh, major changes within the police department. They moved people and dismissed people and fired people, and at the, some of the lower levels arrested people and moved them out of the police department. So they changed the police department completely. Now, I'm entering the police department during this uh, this change where you saw, you know, chiefs and inspectors, the high-level people being forced out, being forced to retire, some of them being fired, some of them being prosecuted. Um, so it really changes everything. And systemic corruption, based upon the NAP Commission results, basically doesn't exist anymore in the police department of the NYPD. And we can thank Frank Serpico and the NAP Commission for that. So what they do is they put in place a division. They call it the Internal Affairs Division, and their job is to root out corruption. And what they do is very, very good at stopping this systemic corruption. But they remain stagnant over the years. They don't grow. See, corrupt people and corruption will find a way. It's like water. It'll find its own level. And what the old Internal Affairs Division didn't do was grow was didn't learn from, uh, from their mistakes, did not uh, adapt to changing corruption patterns, and a new type of corruption that we termed opportunistic corruption was allowed to grow and grow. Now, opportunistic corruption comes at a time when the crack epidemic is flourishing throughout all major cities, especially New York. And now we have something new that they didn't necessarily have uh, pre-nap days. Pre-nap was mostly gambling, was mostly prostitution, the vices. They were uh, profiting from looking the other way, not necessarily participating in the action, but allowing it to flourish. Now this new corruption, where they're taking advantage of situations, taking advantage of the large sums of money available through uh, narcotics and narcotics enforcement, 
becomes much more difficult to, to uh, detect using the old methods. And the old IAD did not grow. They did not evolve while corruption mutated. Well, and that's the story of any company, any life, any church, any organization. Good people just can't manage in their own minds to wrap their heads around how an evil person will do anything, avoid anything to just do bad stuff. So it's no easy job to be uh, running or working with internal affairs for that reason alone. But also, when you first joined internal affairs and you were the chief of the NYPD's Eternal Affairs Bureau as, as we ended. You, what was it like then when you first started? What, what did the cops think of Internal Affairs? I mean, we get that uh, opinion from TV shows that people think that the guys in Internal Affairs are bad guys because they're going after cops. But I would, I would guess that good cops were rooting for Internal Affairs to get the bad cops out of their midst. Well, in the, in the very beginning, when we first started... We looked at the Internal Affairs Division, and we, we wanted to find out what was the opinion of uh, who was the Internal Affairs investigator that the cops identified with. And we did focus groups, and we brought in oh, a couple of hundred police officers, all different ranks, all different assignments, uh, all different levels, they, you know, young officers, more senior officers. And we asked them, who is the typical Internal Affairs investigator, and what do they do? Now, their opinions their beliefs, whether it's true or not, is what they believed, is that was reality to them. And their opinion was that if you were in internal affairs back then, when I first started in internal affairs, 1993, that you were one of three people. You were either a coward because you were afraid to be a real cop and you went and hid in internal affairs rather than be on the street and be on patrol. Number two, you were a thief. You were a rat. You got caught dirty. And in exchange for some type of leniency, you agreed to go to internal affairs and rat out other cops. Or you were a zealot, someone who thinks they're going to change the world uh, by their mere presence, by their mere force of will, the world will be a better place. Now, again, I don't know if that was true or not, but that was their belief. And that was one of the first hurdles we had to overcome. Because my own experience with the internal affairs was not very positive. Now that, again, we're talking about the old internal affairs division. And it's something I call the great Christmas tree caper of 1978, where I was involved in an incident where there was a major demonstration down by City Hall. And I had recovered through a cab driver, a briefcase belonging to a businesswoman. And we did everything we needed to do. We properly vouched it. We, we uh, notified the, the woman to come pick up her bag. We did everything we needed to do. It was done under supervision. And uh, it was textbook because at the time I was studying hard for the sergeant's exam. And I kind of knew the procedures as well as I, I ever would know them. So a couple of – this is just before Christmas. So about a week after Christmas, I get a notice to report to the old internal affairs division and bring my notes and my memo book, as we called it, uh, for a certain date. So I looked at that date, and I saw that that was the day that I recovered the, uh, the briefcase. There was no money in it. There was a credit card in it. But, you know, papers, no, business papers that were valuable to the company and valuable to the woman, obviously. So they asked me, uh, point blank, did I steal a Christmas tree from a Christmas tree lot that was a couple of miles away? And I said, no, I never stole a Christmas tree, and I can prove my location. They didn't want to hear it. They were very quick, okay, we're just going to dismiss you. You go away, and this is going to stay on your record. 
that you were accused of stealing a Christmas tree. And it wasn't just me. There was uh, numerous officers. Uh, we were all riding three-wheel scooters at the time, and they couldn't get the full number because the Christmas tree branch was obscuring part of it. So anybody who was working that day in the vicinity was called down to the old Internal Affairs Division. And I argued with them, proving that I was nowhere near the location, and I had two supervisors who could verify that I was miles away, and they just didn't care. They were just quick, and I want to close the case, go away, you know, and that's the impression you get. These guys aren't good investigators. These guys aren't here to help me. These guys are just here to, you know, do their job and quick go home at the end of the night and not worry about anybody else. So coming in with that understanding that they weren't here to help me, they were here just to be expeditious. Uh, and knowing that the general impression is that they're cowards and thieves and zealots, we had to change that image. We had to change that perspective. So the only way to do that is no longer allow anybody to volunteer to come into internal affairs. I certainly didn't volunteer to go. I was drafted by then Commissioner Kelly, who said to me, we're having problems, because there was a new commission that came in 20 years later, the Marlin Commission, yep. that had to do with a man named Michael Dowd. And people in the press uh, had Michael Dowd labeled as the dirtiest cop alive. And Michael was stealing drugs and beating people and stealing money and, and even doing it off-duty, coming in on his days off because he could make lots of money. Yep. And the old IAD, with their old tactics, let Michael go on for six, seven, possibly eight years doing what he was doing, and they never got a chance to catch him because they weren't doing it right. So coming to, with that in my background, we said no more volunteers into internal affairs. We have to select people, we have to draft people, and we have to draft the people who are the most knowledgeable, the best investigators, the people with pristine records, the people with good reputations, the people the other cops admire, the other cops look up to. And that's so smart, Charles, and you changed the culture overnight. We're talking to Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops. More of Charles's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops. And going away with this volunteer system and making it be that the only way you can get in internal affairs was to be chosen, I would assume almost overnight this changes the nature and character of internal affairs itself, Charles. Well, it helped so much because within a short period of time, we started to do additional focus groups, you know, different people, but the same uh, basic backgrounds, cops from all different ranks and all. And amazingly, they weren't telling us about cowards and thieves and zealots. They were talking about, you took our best sergeant, you took our best lieutenant, you know, she was the best boss we ever had, and you stole her from us. And it no longer was thieves and, and cowards. It was 
The best people go to IAB. That's not fair. They shouldn't go to IAB. They should be allowed to stay where they are. But IAB being such an important part of policing, and I used to tell my, my peers and my supervisors, you know, crime reduction in New York is great. We're, we're breaking all records. But I'll tell you, we have another big scandal, and all our, our, our accolades have gone down the drain. Yep. We have to prove to the people that we could police ourselves. We can prove to the people that we're going to get rid of those bad cops. And what we found over our years is the overwhelming majority of cops, men and women, hardworking, dedicated people, come to work, do a very difficult job. But there's that small percentage, that half a percent, if you would, maybe one percent, that will steal the headlines every day away from the good cops. And in the New York City Police Department, where you have over 50,000 employees, 37,000 sworn officers, traffic agents, school safety agents, uh, assorted staff and computer analysts, that 50,000 people, if you're looking at 1%, you're looking at 500 people that you've got to worry about. And so that 1%, I think this is another point that I think is worth illustrating, is if you got 1%, then you've got quite a number of people out there doing bad things. But it's how long they can do bad things and to how many people. I, I had a lot of experience in Newark. I played a lot of basketball there. I had some friends there. And there was one cop that everybody knew was bad and everybody was afraid of for good reason. And he carried on on the streets for a decade without recourse till he was finally cuffed and stuffed. But the, what the harm he did, because everybody assumed everybody knew, but, but everybody didn't know. It, it turns out he was a rogue guy who just, he got away with things for far too long. And the impact and the damage it did to the opinion of people on the street as it relates to the Newark Police Department, I say it, it, they, for people who encountered that guy, they still haven't recovered, Charles. I agree with you, absolutely, that one person can affect the image of the entire force because that's the one that's going to be the, the most cognizant in your mind, and that's the one when he or she gets caught, makes the front page. And all the good that you've done gets washed away with that corruption scandal. Yep, and let's talk about a story I remember from back uh, when you were there, and that's the Abner Lawima case. And this is a difficult, difficult story. Take your time. Walk us through it. Okay, that's one of the most horrific stories in the annals of policing anywhere. And it all starts on a Saturday night in Brooklyn in uh, a club called Club Rendezvous. There's a big party, mostly Haitian Americans attending this party, many Haitian Americans living in the community. There's a big fight that erupts inside the party. It spills out into the street. The police are called, and the police send everybody on their way. There were no arrests made at that time. And while they're breaking up this large disturbance, there's a police officer named Justin Volpe who's standing in front of Club Rendezvous, and a man runs by and sucker punches Justin, knocks him to the ground, and runs away. Justin is now infuriated. And he gets in the car with other officers, and they start to look for the man who sucker-punched Justin. They spot Mr. Abner Luima, who is not the man who punched Justin. But they believe it's him. They grab him. They arrest him. They handcuff him. They put him in the back of a police car, and they beat him up. They hit him several times as they're driving from the scene back to the 70th precinct, 70 precinct, in, uh, in Brooklyn. As they're taking him, two or three times they stop, they punch him, they smack him, they hit him. 
they then bring him into the station house. They bring him before the desk officer, and they explain that this man sucker punched Justin Volpe. We take his belt away, his shoelaces, and the things they normally would do. So when they put him in the cell, he can't hurt himself. But they do something different. They start to walk him back to where the cell area is so that they can start the booking process. As they're walking him, because his, his pants were kind of baggy, they didn't fit well, uh, and they had taken his belt, his pants start to fall down to his ankles. And he's kind of shuffling now, more like a duck walk. And there are officers who are working there. Now, this is on a midnight tour, uh, so it happens someplace about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. They see him being walked back, Mr. Louima, they see him being walked back to the cell area, and nobody thinks much of it. The cell area is to the left of the hallway, but they don't take Mr. Louima to the cell area. They take him to the right, which is a, a, a bathroom that's used by the officers. It's not a public bathroom. It's an a, 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 a office bathroom. So they take him in the bathroom, and then they proceed to beat him again. One officer is in there is beating him again, Justin Volpe. Then, for whatever reason, and this is where my mind can't, can't grasp this, he takes a broomstick, and Justin Volpe breaks the broomstick, and then he rams it into the rectum of Mr. Louima. I can't imagine the pain that this man went through. Uh, a second officer is reported to have entered the bathroom while Justin is doing this to Mr. Louima. He then, is, he then stops after a period of time. He takes Mr. Louima, puts him in the cell, and he waves the stick with feces and blood and, and who knows what. He's waving it around uh, as a prize, as a, some sort of trophy. In the meantime, Mr. Louima is in the cell in excruciating pain. The next morning when the next tour comes on, Mr. Louima is very, very sick. He's in pain. They decide, the new officers decide, wait, this man's sick. We've got to get him to a hospital. And they take him to Coney Island Hospital, where he tells a nurse about being sodomized with a stick by these police officers. What the nurse does is she makes a mistake, and then the Internal Affairs Bureau, my investigator, compounds that mistake. She calls Internal Affairs, and she tells Internal Affairs her husband was assaulted. Now, the officer who takes the call I mean, talk about bad luck for, for all of us. It's his first day at the command center taking phone calls, very first day. He makes a rookie mistake. Well, he is a rookie. When she cannot pronounce Mr. Louima's name, and she mispronounces it two or three times, he says to her, lady, this is your husband? Don't you know his name? Can't you pronounce it? Could you spell it for us? And she says, but she didn't want to really get involved. She wanted to just pass off the information. She says, let me call you back. And then here's where, where my investigator makes the mistake. He says, okay, lady, call me back. You never let the person off the phone. Right. You get as much information as you can. You start a preliminary investigation. You notify your supervisors. You do all of those things. He didn't do any of those things. So a little later in the day, we could, have had, we could have been involved in the case a little earlier if he would have handled the call right. Now, naturally, hold on, Charles, hold that thought right there because we're coming up upon a break. And we want to hear the rest of this story, the Abner Louima story, as horrifying a story as there was in the history of the New York Police Department and the man who was in charge of internal affairs or was working at internal affairs at the time. 
Charles Campisi, his book, Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. More after these messages. Our American Stories, we continue our final segment in this hour-long conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And we were talking about the Abner Loima case and the unfortunate luck of internal affairs getting the call and a rookie answering that call. And what he did, not getting that person's information, letting that call disappear was something, again, that someone more trained, Charles, wouldn't have done. But this was really bad news for internal affairs, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was probably, I was there in internal affairs for 21 years, the chief for 17 and a half years. This was the worst mistake you could make under the worst case that there could be. And so what happens next? Uh, how does the media get a hold of this? How do okay, people that, find that, out, that's, and what happens? That's, that's an excellent point, because the media doesn't get a hold of this until Wednesday. Now, this is a Sunday morning when we get the phone call, and they drop the call. We get a second call about a man being in the hospital, injured, seriously injured. That call, a couple of hours later, is handled absolutely correctly. We, get a, we dispatch investigative teams to the hospital. We send a team to the 7-0 precinct to secure it and, uh, and freeze the, the bathroom. We send people to Club Rendezvous to try to get as much information as possible. And our investigation is off and running on Sunday, Sunday night. Monday morning, I get all this information. Number one, they, they called me at home to tell me all this information. And I said to them, you have the resources you need. What else can I send you? What could I give you? And we're off and running. I get to the police commissioner. His name was Howard Safer at the time. I get to him first thing Monday morning. And I start to lay out our investigation for him. And he's looking at me saying, do you believe this really happened? Because nobody wanted to believe that a man would do this to another man. A human being would do this to another human being. And worst of all, a cop would do this to another human being. And then to compound that it happened in a police station. And people didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to believe it, but the evidence was so overwhelming. So by Monday morning, we've identified who, work, who was working that night. We brought photo arrays to the hospital. We had Mr. Luima pick out the officers that were there, who hit him, who put him in the car. We, we had this investigation in full steam by Monday afternoon. Monday afternoon, uh, I'm called down to City Hall to brief the mayor, Mayor Giuliani. 
and I brief him on the case, and I'm giving him the facts and the circumstances. And as the true prosecutor he was, you got to remember, Rudy Giuliani was the United States attorney uh, for the Southern District of New York. He's asking pertinent questions. And I have to be, be honest, we had the answers because our investigation was solid up to that point. We were working with the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. And the press doesn't get this until Wednesday, and they start asking questions. Now, naturally, the nature of internal affairs work, I can't reveal my investigation to them. So they keep saying, well, what are you doing, police department? What are you doing, internal affairs? And I said to them, don't worry, it's under investigation. But they wanted more. They wanted names and dates and facts and figures, which I could not give them because I'm working with prosecutors. And what prosecutor wants his or her case in the newspaper before they get a chance to bring it before a grand jury. Yep. Well, the good news is within two weeks, we had five indictments. Now, if you know the criminal justice system, to get people indicted in two weeks, to get five police officers indicted in two weeks, that's a pretty quick time period. That's, that's, a, that's a monumental task, and we did it. Well, Charles, you did it respecting the in- presumption of innocence of the cops, which we have to always respect. Um, but, Everybody is innocent until proven guilty. Right. Everybody. And sometimes Citizens, we see, Charles, sometimes we see a prosecutor go in and get an indictment before there's any investigation. And, and that's the dynamic tension between internal affairs and the media. And the media wants, and, and the masses, well, they want a prosecution or they want an indictment immediately. They but, want an execution. Well, they today. want an execution. And your job is to get to the truth. And this is why it's so important for internal affairs to have integrity internal affairs to have the kind of people, the quality people that can protect the very brand and image of the department by so seeking out truth that they're willing to get that bad cop and prosecute him, but only if he's violated the law. And we went step by step. And I tell you what was great about this case. We always hear about the blue wall of silence. Well, in this particular case, once some of the facts became known, once the officers in the 7-0 precinct realized that this really happened, they came forward, and they provided the critical information that we needed to get the indictment in two weeks. We had an officer who started to put things together. He saw Volpe and, um, and Mr. Luima walking into the, into, towards the bathroom area. He saw Luima with a stick in his hand, and he says, wait a minute, this might have happened. He calls us and says, I have information, and I want to talk to you guys right now. Now, we're talking about you know, 2 o'clock in the morning. So we get a team together, and we rush the team over to, to, to him, and he starts giving us a piece of information. Then another cop comes forward with a piece of information, and our case starts to build real quickly and real solid. So the blue wall of silence, if there is such a thing, and I can attest that there is, but I'll talk about that in a second, it crumbles in this case because it was so horrendous that people in the precinct, other police officers, said, this can't happen. We can't stand by and let this happen. So very, very encouraged by the officers coming forward in that case. And by the way, it was remarkable. The, the right things happened. Uh, people were prosecuted. They were thrown in prison like they should have. And ultimately, Abner Luina was, well, not made whole because you can't be made whole after something like this. But there were civil fines 
and the Luima family was compensated for their damages. I can't imagine what that man went through, and he received compensation, and Justin Volpe is serving a 30-year sentence in a federal penitentiary, I believe, in Minnesota. And that's what justice looks like and needs to look like always for all. And by the way, equal justice under the law, that's the, that's the game for the cops, equal justice for the citizens, equal justice. And let, talk about that blue wall of silence in our final minutes together. Um, because it's it's there, uh, but how is it different than it was back in the day? Well, I'll tell you, everybody knows of, the, knows of the blue wall of silence, but my question is, what makes people think that a wall of silence exists only within the policing community, which it does, but it exists in every occupation and every group. There is, we had a case that we investigated, there was two firefighters in a fire station get into a fight. One of them hits the other with a folding chair, serious injury. The fire department, which also handles EMS, picks the man up and rushes him to the hospital. They say he fell off of a ladder while he was fixing something. They quick clean up the the crime scene. They take all the blood. They throw the chair away. They do all of this stuff. So what we call that a red wall of silence because they covered up for their own. In the medical profession, very rarely do you see doctors testifying against other doctors. And we've had cases where Doctors have botched surgeries, and the other people in the operating room never came forward. So could we call that the white wall of silence? In, in occupations, especially occupations where you rely on the other person for safety and for your very life, there tends to be a wall of silence. Is there a blue wall of silence? Yes, but it is not just in the police profession. It is in all professions. Now, you'd see it in the military, too, in combat. You'd see this, by the way, when the, when, the, when the Armstrong, Lance Armstrong doping thing happened in bicycling, the doping in baseball. Well, it turned out there was a lot more of it than people cared to admit because, A, no one wanted to snitch, and, B, a lot more people were doing it than cared to admit. Absolutely. And, and these are things that happen because human beings are flawed, and that's just the nature of any occupation and, frankly, any walk of life. Our human beings are flawed. Uh, tell me one last misconception people might have about not only the life in internal affairs, but the life and the daily life of particularly a big city cop. See, cops don't come to work with, every day with the idea of hurting people. So to some people, they think that these cops, all they want to do is abuse people's rights. They want to hurt people. They're racist. They're prejudiced. Cops don't come to work to hurt people. Sometimes there are situations where, where people are injured and people are hurt. In internal affairs, internal affairs investigators are not there to hurt good cops. And that's the, the impression we get mainly because of in the movies and in television, internal affairs is always the, the outsider, the cop who is uh, uh, trying to hurt the hero or heroine from doing a, a good job. Yep. They're trying to prevent Dirty Harry from getting those bad guys off the street, and they want to stop the cops who are, who are uh, uh, break, dragging in the drug dealers. That's not the case. We, we're police officers. We're there to support good cops, to help good cops, but we're there primarily to make sure that the bad cops don't get away with it and they don't tarnish the reputation and steal the headlines away from the good cops. Well, we've been talking to Charles Campisi, who is the chief of NYPD's Internal Affairs Bureau, the biggest internal affairs bureau in the country, representing and doing work with and for 
the biggest police force in the country with, at the time, at one point in time, 41,000 cops, over 50,000 in total. And that's bigger than, well, many towns in America. And when you have that many people, you're going to have to police some of the bad guys. Charles Campisi's book, Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops, is a must-read. We don't do a lot of books on our American stories, but when we do them, we know you'll love them. And Charles, thanks for the storytelling, and thanks for telling this story for all the cops, particularly the good cops, Charles, as you said, the overwhelming majority that you serve. Well, thank you so very much. It was my pleasure to be, and I I hope uh, uh, we added to uh, some of the changes that we need. You bet. And thanks again. That's Charles Campisi, Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. Go to Amazon.com and get it now. Charles Campisi's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man, a tribute to those who serve because it's National Police Week, a week to honor the fallen, a week to honor those who gave their last full measure of devotion to their communities, to their country. National Police Week centers around a memorial service that began in 1982 as a gathering in Washington, D.C.'s Senate Park with approximately 120 survivors and supporters of law enforcement. Decades later, tens of thousands attended annually. For the hour, we'll celebrate the fallen's lives with their stories and tributes to them. The first story is of Ashley Gwinden, a 28-year-old police officer who lost her life on her very first shift on February 27, 2016, in Prince William County, Virginia. Earlier this morning, we interviewed her mentor and counselor, Chris Bonner, professor at Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University, about Ashley. Chris is a veteran of law enforcement himself, spending 28 years as a special agent with the FBI and is now a reserve deputy sheriff in his community. He first told us how he met Ashley. I teach courses in Homeland Security and Security Studies to include uh, uh, terrorism, intelligence, and uh, criminal justice. Ashley was one of my first students uh, that I taught at Embry-Riddle, and uh, she was also a, I learned she was a reservist in the United States Marine Corps, so uh, she, she attracted a lot of attention, uh, my attention, you know, because of her background and the, the career field she chose. Uh, after class, uh, a lot of my students will come to my office and um, we'll talk about my prior law enforcement career. And, and sometimes I uh, suggest to them that it's it, perhaps a career path that they should entertain. Ashley was one of them. She identified early on that she wanted to go into law enforcement. 
Ashley wanted to go into forensics and crime scene investigations. She entered the graduate program in forensic science at George Washington University and subsequently took an internship and then a job at Prince William County Crime Scene Unit and later found her calling as a police officer and then came her first day. And then came the news that nobody wants to hear, no family member, no friend, no nobody. And we hear again here from Chris, her mentor, and how he learned of what happened, sadly and tragically, to his mentee. Then one sad day, I, I, uh, a couple months ago, I, I, I go online and I see a police officer was killed in the line of duty. And, uh, you know, it, and as I said before, it, it, I, I take these things personally. It really hits home. I've lost friends that were killed in the line of duty who were, who were law enforcement officers. And then I was horrified to see that it was Ashley Blinden. And it was even more horrified and saddened to see that it was her first day on the job. She did not even complete her first shift. When she responded to a domestic violence call, and from talking to my colleagues and, and, and law enforcement partners, is sometimes one of the worst calls you can get uh, involved in because they're highly emotionally charged. Usually um, physical abuse occurs, and somebody's going to jail that night. So Ashley and her training officer and another officer appear at this um, uh, house, uh, and uh, upon approaching the house, uh, the subject uh, opened the door, uh, met them with a rifle, and started shooting. Ashley and the two other officers went down, uh, and I learned that Ashley refused or delayed medical attention, saying that her partners needed it more than she did. Uh, I think back on these things and, and the sorrow and the tragedy that unfolded that day, both the victim of the domestic violence and the police officers, and it, 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 uh, it's just tragic. Um, uh, I, I, I'm, I was, I was just, uh, crestfallen when, when I, when I heard that, uh, she'll ever be forever remembered as a hero and, and, and a role model, uh, especially the females, uh, females are underrepresented in law enforcement. And, and I think Ashley Gwynden should be considered, uh, a, a, a beacon, a bright light, as an example to everyone uh, of, of the best of young people, what they could become. Well, indeed, only 11% of law enforcement is female. Ashley, again, was one of them. We asked Chris, was she one of the few folks he mentored, or was she one of a kind? She was one of a few that became one of a kind. She was one of a few because of, of her... Um, her background uh, being uh, a Marine Corps reservist um, and uh, the fact that, uh, you know, she was a female. Usually the, the students of mine that wanted to go into law enforcement are generally, you know, the male students. Uh, and that set her aside in the part. And uh, you know, because of her background, um, she lost her father. Uh, she was raised by her mother. Um, I, uh, I, I kind of took special interest uh, in her, um, in, in, in wanting her to realize her career. So mentorship is a very, very important part of my job as a university professor, uh, to help these students, uh, identify a career path and then help them realize that dream. I was, I'm, I'm only too happy to help. I, I think it's part of, it is part of my job. And, uh, Ashley was an individual that uh, uh, I wanted to make sure that she attained the goal that she set 
Uh, and I feel like I helped her do that, but then tragically, um, you know, uh, she's not with us anymore. However, she still continues to be a mentor. and She can forever be a mentor in the hearts of law enforcement officers uh, as an example of the best. And indeed, that domestic dispute case, there was a telephone voice and a call from a wife, a woman afraid of her husband. And she said, he's going to kill me. And when Ashley and her crew got there, that woman was dead. And then that guy wanted to kill cops, and he did. So always remember, these cops, when they respond to these calls, they never know what's going to happen. Ashley Gwinden, just one of others, we'll, co- we'll cover here on our tribute in National Police Week to Fallen Heroes. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, National Police Week. A week to honor the fallen. A week to honor those who gave their last full measure of devotion to their communities and their country. And we're talking about Ashley Gwinden, who was tragically killed on her first shift on February 27, 2016, in Prince William County, Virginia, answering the domestic dispute call. Something you'd think would just be quite ordinary. Only it didn't end well. And we were talking to her mentor this morning. And Chris Bonner, a former FBI agent. And again, her mentor and her teacher. We spoke with. And for almost any of us, anytime we do something brand new for the first time, it's nerve-wracking. And that's especially got to be the case for police officers on their first call. Answering that first call. We asked Chris Bonner how Ashley must have felt going into this, her first and her final shift. Of of course, you're a bundle of nerves. Uh, You're hoping that you're going to do the right thing. Uh, You you have a field training officer with you, and and especially women. Women in law enforcement, there's there's still that male dominance that, 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 that kind of says, oh, well, you know, she needs help. She's a woman. She's... Um, uh, she's, she's, she's not going to execute to, to the standards of training. Uh, and, and I'm sure all that's going through her mind, especially her first call that she, she wanted to do well. She, she was going to do well. She was going to apply her training, her, her, her intelligence on that. Uh, and I'm sure that was going through her mind going up to that, that door. The first time you make an arrest, not knowing what's on the other side of the door it, it's quite intimidating. Uh, and it's an adrenaline rush, an adrenaline flow. Uh, and I'm sure all these emotions were going on in her head. But then again, when when, when a, a, a police officer approaches that front door, you get that tunnel vision, um, uh, and, and you become so focused. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's just a, um, uh, <laughs> it's a lot of things going on uh, where, where the general public sees or reads about 
police encounters and shootings and such. Uh, and then they analyze it like the talking heads on TV do. Well, they have the vision of hindsight. They have the time to assess and analyze what's going on. Not a police officer. A police officer has to react in a split second in life and death situations, uh, hoping that uh, the, the training will kick in and the right thing will be done. Um, it, it's a lot to process, especially in the mind of somebody in the first day of the job. We asked Chris what it was like going to Ashley's funeral and the all-too-many law enforcement funerals he's been to. Uh, when you go to, uh, we call them cop funerals or police funerals, uh, you see the long lines of, of police officers standing at attention, stone-faced and stoic. Um, uh, but inside, uh, a full range of emotions are, are, are taking place uh, to include uh, um, angst, anxiety, sorrow, grief. And every time a uh, police officer is killed in the line of duty, law enforcement officer pays the ultimate sacrifice, uh, a little bit of us uh, dies uh, with that officer uh, inside of us. MB Riddle Aeronautical University, where Chris is a professor, has permanently placed a plaque on the campus in honor of Ashley, a plaque that contains one of her favorite sayings. Live for something rather than die for nothing. Chris once told a reporter, quote, Sometimes I feel like I kind of talked her into this career. Do I feel a sense of responsibility? I don't know. If Chris does have any responsibility for talking her into this career, he should be proud of it. Proud of who she was and his role in it. And this next gentleman we're about to hear from said it was right. It was meant to be. He said it was time to go home. God called them home. Let's take a listen to the then Memphis Police Director Tony Armstrong eulogizing police officer and Marine veteran of the Iraq War, Sean Bolton, who was shot and killed during a traffic stop that many of us civilians see as routine and a nuisance. But for cops, well, that's not quite how they see it. Let's take a listen. The citizens in this great city slept very well knowing that Sean was on patrol. On August the 1st, God arranged for Sean to patrol the neighborhood. God arranged that meeting. People were asleep in their beds. Sean was doing what I would love for in you, the man that we do. Patrol your neighborhood. You demand that when we see something that just does not feel right to us, that our training, our experience tells us is not right, you demand that we investigate. And that's exactly what Sean did. Sean encountered an individual and it's basically said that that individual took his life, but that's not totally true. It was time for Sean to go home. God called Sean home. At the conclusion of our shifts, after we've done our time, our officers get on the radio Tell the dispatcher it's time for me to signal C. And basically what that is is just telling the dispatcher, I've completed my shift. I've answered every call. I've done my absolute best on this day. My time is up. 
I've done my job. Take me out of service. I'm no longer available for calls. It's time for me to go home. And Sean made it home. God embrace Sean. And I want to say to Sean now what we should have said to him a long time ago. Thank you. Thank you for your service to this country. And thank you for making the ultimate sacrifice to this city. When Sean made it home, God embraced him. God looked at him and said, Sean, all lives matter. All lives matter. And some time ago, I wrote a column called Cops Lives Matter. And some of the things I pointed out in that column were the remarkable number of lives cops save and have saved. And in New York City, for instance, in the 1990s, 2,200 people a year were getting killed, murdered. And it was 290 the year before last. That's amazing. I wrote, the majority of lives saved were actually black because the overwhelming majority of murder victims in the city are black. Do the math. Tens of thousands of black lives saved in the past two decades by cops, black and white, in New York. By the way, the mayor couldn't manage to bring that up when there had been a terrible and tragic and fatal shooting and a couple of things that cops had done in New York that weren't particularly good. And by the way, there were bad cops. But he didn't give credit to all the good cops and never bothered. Why are you killing us? A protester recently asked Sergeant Harry Dilworth, a black cop from Ferguson. Dilworth told a New York Times reporter that he responded by naming three names and asked the protester if he had heard of any of them. The protester hadn't. Dilworth told him they were black men recently killed in St. Louis by other black men. We're not killing you. You're killing yourselves, the African-American man told the other African-American man. And that's why so many cops are upset. Yeah, there are bad cops. We know that. And we've got to out them. And cops know this. And there's got to be more transparency. But they're being blamed, I wrote, for problems they didn't cause. And because not one of those leaders tried to exhibit any sympathy for cops at that time. And the world and the media was coming down on law enforcement in general. And by the way, the media could have asked us to imagine what it would like to be the spouse of a cop working in New York City or Detroit or Los Angeles or some of the tough crime areas in white or rural America. Most Americans, I wrote, have no idea what it's like to be a cop, what cops worry about, what their families worry about, how easily a simple disturbance can get out of hand, how dangerous a domestic violence case can turn, how tragically even a routine traffic stop can end. What every cop I know tells me is this. What they worry about most is doing no harm to innocent people and getting home safe each night and getting their partners home safe too. And what they tell me over and over is this. What throws everything upside down is when a person being questioned or stopped doesn't comply with the instructions of police. Or worse, when he or she resists, that's when bad things happen. It doesn't matter what the infraction is. When a citizen resists arrests, it's a dangerous signal. And that's when everything heads south. Black Lives Matter, we close the column out with. But cops' lives matter too. And the two 
Both need to be understood. This is Lee Habib. More in this celebration and honoring of fallen cops. National Police Week. More after these messages. our American stories and it's National Police Week a week to honor the fallen and again to honor those who gave their last measure of devotion to their communities and paid the ultimate price with their lives our next story is that of Kentucky State Trooper Cameron Ponder on September on September 13th 2015 he was conducting a routine traffic stop it was 10 p.m. And after about 10 minutes, the vehicle sped off, leading Trooper Ponder on a high-speed chase. Let's listen to the harrowing audio of the police radio communications on what happened next. His car's smoking. He's slowing down. We're down to 76 right now. 10-4. I think he's stopping here at the 49. 10-4, 35, you copy? He's off again. He's got a blown front left tire. I tried to him in, and he's uh, trying to go still. Say four. Permission to uh, pit. Yeah. He, he's done. He don't have a tire. Say four. Shots fired. Shots fired. Shots. I'm hit. I'm hit. I need assistance. Passing out. 35, did you copy? Mayfield, repeat. Shots fired at 85. He's been hit. He's passing out. And by the way, that's not a CSI series, folks. That's what it sounds like. Trooper Ponder died as a result of his wounds, including a gunshot wound to the face. One man who knew Trooper Cameron Ponder was Agent Garrick Zink Kazinkowitz, himself with the United States Border Patrol. He wanted Cam, his best friend of 20 years, to be the best man at his wedding. Here's what Zink later wrote in remembrance of his friend. And I'm going to read. Cam, words can't explain what you meant to me. It seems like just yesterday we were dominating the playing fields together. Buddy, what I do to get back to those days. There are so many good times we shared together. When we were growing up, great stories, memories I'll carry with me forever, my friend. It's been a little more than a year since you've left San Diego now. I remember helping you get all your stuff packed as you were moving out of my house. It was a tough day for both of us. We both knew it would be a long time before we would see each other again. Neither one of us said anything, just a hug, handshake, and a take care, my friend. I remember I made a call to you in mid-February of 2015. It was one of the most exciting calls of my life. Cam, I said as you picked up. Your boy's getting hitched. Man, you were so excited for me, it even took me by surprise. Given the fact that you had just graduated the Kentucky State Police Academy 
I knew it would be tough for you to get time off and attend. But I asked anyway. Cam, I want you to be my best man, I asked. Buddy, I know it killed you that you couldn't be there. It meant the world to me, though, to see how happy you were for me. And I appreciate that more than anything. You were there in spirit, and that's all I cared about, my friend. It's funny to me how as we get older, we never grew apart. We didn't have to speak to each other once a week. We'd go months without talking, and somehow when we spoke, it's like we never missed a beat. We'd just pick right up where we left off the last time. You know? I'm going to miss that, my friend. Here we are now, and my one regret at this moment is that I didn't call you sooner. I never got a chance to ask you how life as in L-E-O was, which is shorthand for law enforcement officer. I never got a chance to say congratulations on your engagement. I never got a chance to say thank you for our friendship, for the memories, and for your service. And for that, I am truly sorry, Cam. Your memory will live on forever with me, Cam. You touched so many people's lives in a positive way. Your service to keep the public safe will never be forgotten. You made the ultimate sacrifice. And as much pain as I'm in, it comforts me to know that you are in a better place. You'll forever have a place in my heart. And it's been an honor being by your side all these years. I'm coming home, buddy. We will be united one last time. Beautiful. You don't hear men writing to each other like that enough. And on our American stories, we're happy to bring that to you. It's an honor. The next story, Susan Farrell. A Des Moines police officer. Susan had been a veteran for over 11 years. She was hit in her cruiser and killed in a head-on collision by a drunk driver. At her emotional funeral, police chief Dana Wingert asked all the first responders to stand. And then he said this. So why get in this business? If this is how it ends, if this is what it's all about, why sign on? Regardless of whether you're fighting fires, fighting crime, or providing medical care to save lives, you sign on because you know that there are people that depend on you. You sign on because you know that you're making a difference and it would be chaos without you. You sign on for the personal satisfaction that you're able to bring home from the job that only someone that fills your role can understand. You sign on because it's a calling and you truly care about the welfare of others. Don't ever for a second forget why you signed on. To the family members, I'd like you to turn around. I'd like you to turn around and take this all in. And don't just look at the sheer numbers, look into their eyes. They sign on because you know that there are people like this in this room that will always be there for you. It is who we are, it is what we do. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing quite like it and Officer Susan Farrell will always be a part of this family. They didn't make it. Those are the words that we'll never forget. But I stand here before you today to argue that statement. 
These are nothing more than words because Officer Susan Farrell and Officer Carlos Puente Morales did make it. And now they sit in God's house and they watch over us and they guide us and they will for all of our days. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. And again, so often in the media, the focus is on the bad few. And sometimes the exceptional men and women of courage. But here in our American stories, we want to honor the vast majority of cops trying to do their job under difficult circumstances. We will always talk about holding our nation's cops to the highest standard. And the best of the breed want that. And they don't like bad cops in their midst. They don't. I know too many. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. For the hour, National Police Week. Again, you heard about Susan Farrell. My goodness, you heard the story of Ashley Gwinden. And you're going to hear some more stories on the other side of this break. And I think what's so irritating to so many officers of the law is that cops have driven crime rates to epic lows in this country. And yet 50% of Americans think crime is on the rise. And that's because the media just wants to beat us up with the latest crime statistics. And of course, when there's a bad cop story, they get so excited. And it's just, well, it's just irritating. And worse, it's a morale downer to all the men and women who've done so much good. And it would be once in a while, it would be nice to celebrate and honor cops. And that's what we're doing here. National Police Week. Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and it's National Police Week, and we're spending an hour today, and we've spent quite a bit of time this week, honoring the men and women in blue who've fallen, protecting us from chaos. And we learned right away in that first story about young Ashley Gwinden on her very first call, a simple, you would think, domestic dispute case, a woman screaming for help about a husband she said was trying to kill her and by the way they get those calls all the time and more often than not the husband isn't actually trying to kill her at the time the spouse harm her possibly but in this particular occasion the husband was trying to kill her and he killed her and when the cops arrived they arrived arrived to a crime scene a dead body and a man with a gun who is now looking to kill more people and cops in particular and he didn't hesitate and he gunned down Ashley Gwinden on her first and her last tour of duty. 
And again, what we try to emphasize here in our American stories is that when cops go into these situations, they don't know what's going to happen. An ordinary traffic stop. And having known so many friends whose family served when I was living in northern New Jersey in the NYPD, and I would watch Carl Bazin's brothers strap up, put on that gun, and one of them work in transit in the subways back when that was not a particularly safe beat. And what he wanted to do was make it safe for the women, the waitresses particularly. He always said, that waitress who's going down there at 1 a.m., that's every bad guy's dream to get her, and I'm not going to let him. And there are a lot of things Carl's brother could have done in his life, that that's what he wanted to do. And watching him get, get to work each day, putting that gun on and being plain clothes, you knew he could not come back. That was a strong chance of that. And he did it anyway. And that's always the image I have in my head is Carl Bazin's family, so many of them, almost all of them dedicated to law enforcement, from the dad to the brothers to Carl and the FBI. And a special shout-out to you, buddy, because a lot of things you could have done with your law degree at University of Virginia and serving in counterterrorism in New York City, going around the world, dropping in in Yemen and all these crazy places you've dropped into in Afghanistan and Iraq. God bless, Godspeed. And now let's get to our final story. And it's the story of Marine veteran, Massachusetts State Trooper Thomas Clardy. The day, March 16th, 2016. Thomas was pulling an extra shift before his regularly scheduled duty day to help provide for his seven children. It was noon, and he had just pulled over a Chevy Tahoe. What happened next happened fast. A Nissan Maxima traveling in the outermost lane suddenly veered across three lanes of traffic, almost as if it was intentional. It didn't slow down. It didn't deviate. It just bed straight at Trooper Clardy, and then it slammed into his cruiser. The incredible force of the impact pushed he and his police cruiser into the Tahoe, and all three of them landed in the grass off the highway. Though the ambulance arrives quickly, State Trooper Clardy was declared dead on arrival. At his funeral outside St. Michael's Catholic Church, the Massachusetts State Pipes and Drums honored their fallen. While 1,120 state troopers stood at attention, how do we know that's the number exactly? Well, because his young daughter counted every single trooper as they passed. That's how we know. Perhaps more than anyone, Trooper Clardy will live in the hearts of his children, each of whom wrote a note to be read at his funeral by his friend, retired police sergeant Al Tony. You can hear him struggling to get through these heart-rendering letters. Daddy, I love you. Didn't care. I love the fact that you didn't care what other people thought. I loved how funny you were. I loved all the stories and jokes. I love you, Dad, Emma. Daddy, I remember even though you were running late to work, you always had time to say goodbye. And you always had time to play a game. We always had time to play a game with you. I love you, Daddy. I love Eva. Daddy, I loved that you cared whatever. You didn't care what anyone thought about you. You would always make us happy. You would always make sure that we had everything we needed. I love you and miss you. Love. Gabriella. Daddy, 
My dad was my dad's favorite thing with him. My my favorite thing with my dad was his snug was snuggling with him, hugs and kisses. Love Noah. Lily, my dad was a great guy. I loved him for many things. I loved how he always said to me, "I can't wait till I get to work." And and tell and tell and tell the guys I work with about the most beautiful girl in the world. But Sergeant Tony saved the best one for last, from Trooper Clarty's 17-year-old son, Tyler, who, much to all the funeral's delight, brought a laugh and a smile to everyone's face as he divulged the secret moments he long shared and treasured with his dad. Tyler says to me, in 2007, he was nine years old. His father came. They had a birthday party for him. His father came to him, and father says, come with me, son. His father took him out. He says, where are we going? They went to the show. Pulled up to the theater and went to the show. Tom turned to Tyler, and he said, it's about time, son. I'm going to take you to your first R-rated movie. The summer before, Tyler states also that the summer before his um, senior year in high school, um, he was turned 17. He says his dad came home. It was like any other day. His dad came home, and his dad said, son, come with me. They went out to the backyard, made a fire in the fire pit. Tom put two chairs around the fire pit. Tyler says they sat there for three hours. They made hot dogs and hamburgers, just the two of them. And Tom talked to Tyler about life. Not only did Tom talk about Tyler, tell Tyler about life, Tom told Tyler what he expected of him in life. That's a father. That's a father that cares. Trooper Clarty, remembered by his kids, remembered by his colleagues. And we're going to leave this hour with another reading. The Thin Blue Line really is a fraternity of sorts, a a brotherhood that doesn't require kinship, but is born by shared sacrifice. Here is an officer sharing a poem for his fallen brothers. Here is Chad Miner. Hello, my name is Chad Miner. I work for the police department in Powell, Wyoming. In 2011, we lost one of our patrol sergeants to an off-duty accident. During that time, dispatcher Jesse Borcher forwarded a poem to me titled The Final Inspection. I would like to share that poem with you today. The policeman stood and faced his God, which must always come to pass. He hoped his shoes were shiny, just as brightly as his brass. Step forward now, policeman, how shall I deal with you? Have you always turned the other cheek? To my church have you been true? The policeman squared his shoulders and said, No, Lord, I guess I ain't because those of us who carry badges can't always be a saint. I've had to work most Sundays, and at times my talk was rough, and sometimes I've been violent, because the streets are awfully tough. But I never took a penny that wasn't mine to keep, though I worked a lot of overtime when the bills got just too steep. And I never passed a cry for help, though at times I shook with fear, and sometimes, God forgive me, I've wept unmanly tears. I know I don't deserve a place among the people here. They never wanted me around, except to calm their fear. 
If you've a place for me here, Lord, it needn't be so grand. I never expected or had too much, but if you don't, I'll understand. There was silence all around the throne, where the saints had often trod. His policemen waited quietly for the judgment of his God. Step forward now, policemen. You've borne your burdens well. Come walk a beat on heaven's streets. You've done your time in hell. The author of this poem is unknown. We would like to extend our thoughts and prayers to the families who have lost loved ones in the line of duty, and also to those families that currently share their loved ones in the line of duty. May God bless you. And there you have it, four tragic, four sad stories, four fallen officers, and each year we celebrate and commemorate and honor fallen heroes National Police Week, Ashley Gwinden, Cameron Ponder, Susan Farrell, Thomas Clardy, their families, and the greater family of blue, because we learn over and over that they rally together. We like to do this because, in the end, the thin blue line protects us from bad things. And yes, we periodically do a story about the bad cop because they're there but the overwhelming majority they put on the uniform like Ashley Gwinden does and did for one reason and one reason alone and that is to serve and protect again this is our American stories honoring our fallen police officers our fallen heroes on National Police Week